0: Welcome to Lakeland Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about Lakeland, please visit our website at lakeland.church. All right, all right. Good morning. I know some of you are clapping. Yay. Final message of the end. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha. Uh, This will be the final message. And so actually, um, I'm doing something a little bit different today. Uh, You'll notice I'm up here a little bit earlier than normal, and I requested that so um, that I could teach longer today because... Otherwise, we'd be here for week six of the end game, and I just wanted to be done. Okay, so I want—I've got some other things I want to get to in our next series, uh, but let me start by just saying welcome to everyone who's joining us online. Welcome to everyone in VR. So glad that you're with us today as well. It's going to be a fun day, as we—I I hope a fun day. Okay, I, I'm just saying I hope. Uh, as we finish up this series, the end game, and we've been looking at the, the kind of uh, things that are uh, related to the end of. The end of the age, the end of time, as far as Jesus' return and him, him coming back. And um, there's all these things that, that Jesus spoke about to say, look for these things. It will be the indicator of my return. Now, if your first time to church here, never been maybe to church, maybe it was like the whole thing of Christianity, Jesus' Bible, maybe that's all new to you. Um, listen, Jesus said that he was going to, or the, the Old Testament prophets said that Jesus would come. He did. There's five times the number of prophecies about his second coming. In comparison to his first, he's going to come actually again. And when he returns, it's kind of the end of He's going to deal with uh, uh, with sin and Satan. And there's a whole lot of things that have to be reconciled. There's a lot that's still to come. But before his second coming, he said, here's some things to start looking uh, toward. And so that's what we're going to be. uh, That's what this series has been about. Today, um, I'm going to, let me just tell you this. I'm going to be doing something that I don't normally do. Normally, I would say I'm more of a preacher. So preaching is diving into God's word, and I I think it's uh, dealing with it in such a way that expositionally or expo, I always forget the words, anyhow, uh, to work my way through scripture in an inspiring and motivating way. That's more preaching. Teaching is less motivational and inspirational and more informational. I'm going to lean into that today, okay? Um, And so uh, hopefully I'll do it in a way that's not terribly boring. Uh, But I think there's a lot of really important things that we've got to uh, look at as far as Israel and the future okay and so here's how I'd liken it if you've ever played cards before um, a lot of times when you play cards there might be a wild card maybe it's the joker and let's say you've got a pair of something in in your hand well if you've got the wild card all of a sudden you've got a three of a kind and it can sway the whole deck right it's like all of a sudden I've got something that's so much better so much different and it can change the whole game in many ways that's Israel Israel is this small thing, in the this small nation, in the middle of the world. That it just seems like, but it has the ability. It sways everything. It changes the whole game. And so today, what we're going to be looking at is just this, and I think it's really interesting, especially time-wise, with what's unfolded in Israel over the past week. Um, but let's look at Israel's kind of past, present, and future. Past, present, and future. Where'd it come from? Where'd it go? Where's it going? Cotton Eye Joe, okay? That's what we're looking at with Israel today. All right, so I'm just gonna, I'm, I'm gonna be honest. I'm gonna regularly just be like, are you all okay? Okay, <laughs> with me, and just to kind of talk back. It's gonna be like, Yeah, we're still tracking with you because this is gonna be a lot of information. And uh, so just put on your thinking caps and stay with me. Are you ready? Okay, here we go. We're going to start with this question. Why does Israel seem like it's the centerpiece of world history? Well, a lot of that is just because uh, God's promises were first given to this nation. It's out of this nation. The whole story of salvation centers around the history of Israel, his creation, redemption, and restoration uh, within this nation. God's power and might is evident all over this nation. In fact, the very first declaration that this nation would come to be and what it would be, uh, we find it in Genesis chapter 12, it's verses 1 through 3. It's also what we refer to as the Abrahamic covenant. This is God's words that he spoke to Abraham about what would become the nation of Israel. The Lord had said to Abram, Abram is his name before God renames him Abraham. From your country, or go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. Let's just pause on that line for a second. God's promises are yes and forever. This is the reason why I think it's so important that America is always supportive of Israel because God says, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. There's, here, here's the reality. I do believe that there's such wickedness rampant all over America right now. There will always be punishment that comes upon our nation due to wickedness and sin and evil. However, there will also always be a grace that's extended to us as a nation as long as we support Israel. I, I just believe that because I read that right here. I'll bless those who bless you, and as long as we do support Israel, there is an extended grace over our nation in spite of our, our wickedness and some of the sin that our nation is turning to right now. And now look at what it says, even at the very beginning here at the Abrahamic covenant, when God speaks it, he starts leaning into the Messiah that's going to come out of this nation. And all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So it's not just that you're going to be a blessing upon your nation. It will be extended to all peoples in every nation. That comes through Christ. When Christ comes, he lays down his life on the cross for everyone, that that becomes an extended gift to anyone who would want to receive that gift through faith, by putting their faith in what Jesus did for them at the cross, and not putting our faith in ourselves or our works, but what Jesus accomplished for us at the cross on behalf of our sin. And so this is this early declaration of what will come out of Abraham's descendants, that it will be the people of Israel. Okay, so this is the promise over the people Why? What's up with the land specifically Uh, uh, as far as this sliver of of land right in the middle of the Middle East? Well, Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 3 through 5 describes what's going on there. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he has scattered you. Even if you've been banished to the most distant land under the heavens from there, the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. He will bring you to the land that belonged to your ancestors, and you will take possession of it. This is a declaration that basically is saying, listen, even if you uh, respond in wickedness and you get scattered to the farthest nations, which that will happen to the Israelites in the Old Testament, he's saying, I will gather you back to this land, which is... The, israel, the israelites referred to at this time as the promised land which is the, the state of and the israel the nation that it is today that that's the land that the lord is saying i will always get you back to that land so what so that's the land what makes jerusalem so important it's interesting because even during the middle ages some mapmakers placed jerusalem as the exact center Of the world. They would place it on a map with Jerusalem at the center. Well, the most obvious reason is that you've got Christians, Jews, and Muslims who all have their most holy sites and origins in this city. To the Jew, they are bound to this land by the Abrahamic covenant. God said, Unto thy seed, I will give you this land. They're also still in pursuit of the building of the third temple. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. They're going to do that, which, by the way, you might say, why are they so set on the building of the third temple and the reinstituting of the sacrifices in Old Old Testament sacrificial system? The reason why is because Jews believe that when they reinstate that, it will actually hearken the Messiah. They they rejected Jesus as the Messiah, but they... They don't realize that, yes, the completion of the third temple will hearken the Messiah. It will hearken Christ back again. That they might actually be able to see him and realize he was the Messiah the first time and he's still there for them, longing for them to have relationship with him um, and, and so that is why they are so dead set on Jerusalem that was the site obviously of the original temple that's where they want it again by the way I mentioned um, I think it was two weeks ago the the red heifer which is an important aspect for them to be able to even start the sacrificial system they have to have a, a, a pure and spotless red heifer and I'd mentioned that it was fourteen months away from the red heifer being ready to be you know used to sanctify the priests I was wrong on the dates, so I apologize. It's actually close, it's like eight months away. So it just means that it, within about eight months, they could be ready to reinstate the sacrificial system, which is their longing and is a part of end times prophecy. Um, for Christians, for us, the land obviously it's the birthplace of Christ, it's the site of his ministry, it's the place where Jesus uh, is the scene of his death. His resurrection and his ultimate return when Christ returns and he touches down on planet Earth, he will touch down on the Mount of Olives across from uh, the city right there from in Jerusalem for the Muslims jerusalem it 's considered holy because it 's the site where they believe Muhammad ascended to heaven it 's why they have the site, the dome of the rock every time you see a picture probably of of Jerusalem, kind of the city, you see this golden uh, you know uh, dome that 's the that 's the Dome of the Rock, and that's where they believe uh, Muhammad ascended to heaven. And so it's, this, it's a holy site for all of these major religions. And so this is why so many, uh, all the, Jerusalem is the desire of many nations. Okay, so now, why, here's the next question. Why is there conflict in Israel? Why is there conflict? You, you might say, well, because, you know, there's, there's this conflict right now with Hamas and things like that. No, it's actually it goes so much further back than that. The conflict is is biblical, actually. It, the conflict actually exists because of a declaration of a conflict that God said would exist between two brothers, between Isaac and Ishmael. Let me just set up kind of what was happening here. God said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, you will become a great nation from you. You're all these children, and a nation will be born. And so what happened is, is Abraham was pretty old, and his wife Sarah was pretty old as well. And they were literally in their 90s, and Sarah's going, I don't know how in the world we're going to fulfill this promise that God has said uh, from us a great nation will come when we're barren. And she's like, I'm too old to make babies. And so she tells Abraham, sleep with my maidservant and produce a child through her that we can fulfill God's promise. So notice what it is. Let's try to fulfill God's promise through man's effort right? And so Abraham sleeps with Hagar, his, her maidservant. And out of Hagar, this is what happens. She becomes pregnant. Sarah is totally bitter that she actually becomes present or pregnant. And so she's, Hagar's crying out to the Lord. And the angel of the Lord said to her, being Hagar, you're now pregnant and you'll give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael. For the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all of his brothers. Now it does go on to say, and he will become a great nation. So out of Ishmael, will become a great nation. But this will be the flavor of what always exists kind of buried within his people. Is that there will be hostility toward others. So who are and toward his brothers? So who are his brothers? Well, his brother becomes Isaac. After Ishmael's uh, been born, God actually enables Sarah in her 90s to become pregnant. It's a miracle. And from that, she gives birth to Isaac. Isaac will give birth to Jacob. From Jacob will come 12 tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, out of Ishmael, also are 12 tribes. And notice what Genesis 25, verse 16 says about this. There were also, these were the sons of Ishmael. He describes them in the previous verses. And these are the names of the 12 tribal rulers according to their settlements and camps. Ishmael lived 137 years. He breathed his last and died, and he was gathered to his people. His descendants settled in the area from Hevilah to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt, As you go toward Ashur, they also lived in hostility toward all the tribes related to them. Okay, so here you've got the the angel of the Lord tells Hagar that her son is going to be against everyone. Everyone's going to be against him. He also tells Hagar that he's going to live in close proximity to his kin, but always live in hostility toward them. And that's exactly what happens. The descendants of Ishmael, they actually become known as Arabs which just simply means nomads, but the descendants of of Ishmael are Arabs. They ultimately become Palestinians that we know today. They live obviously throughout the the Middle East, but mostly in Lebanon, Palestine, Gaza Strip, uh, the Western Bank. They're all in that region, and uh, they are the descendants of Ishmael. Now, the big thing you need to know is that I'm not saying all Palestinians are bad. They're just not. But within the Palestinian people, there will always be what God said will exist within them. Kind of buried within them will be this hostility toward Isaac's descendants, toward his brother's descendants. And that's exactly what exists. Those terrorist cells that are living among them, they call themselves uh, Hamas, Hezbollah. Once again, that's not all Palestinians, but there are terrorist cells within the Palestinians that fulfill what God said would exist within the people of Ishmael. The war that we see in Israel is the continued conflict that God said would always exist between the descendants of these two brothers. That is what is going on. So it's kind of, it's, I'll just be honest, it's hard sometimes to know how to pray for the peace over Israel when you know God said there will always be this battle. Here's what I, th- I believe we should pray toward. Quick, quick conflict resolution, safety for sure over all the innocent Palestinians, and the grace of the Lord and the gospel of Jesus Christ to make it to everyone. That that is what I pray toward in the midst of this um, conflict, and there's and more, but that's one uh, critical part. So there's this war between the descendants of these brothers. Are you guys all okay? Okay. There's also spiritual force and battle that is at work here. There's, there's demonic activity that has been, along, been around way before this battle that we see today waging in Israel. Hamas obviously did incredibly brutal and horrific things this past week, and will probably continue to. But it's not the first time that we've seen Hamas actually uh, on display in fact, we see Hamas is actually a biblical word uh, it 's applied a little bit differently for the uh, for the Islamic nation or for those uh, in, in arabic it can be an acronym for the Islamic freedom movement. It also means bravery to them, but Hebrew and Arabic are actually cognate languages it just means that they 're derived out of the same uh, language base okay they 're related in Genesis six is the first time that we see the Hebrew word Hamas actually. Uh, used. So I wanted to just show this to you because it's fascinating to see. um, As soon as you see it, you're going to be like, oh, I know where this is located, what's happening in scripture. Genesis chapter 6, this is what it says. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and it was full of violence. Hebrew word is hamas. It was full of hamas. So God said to Noah, oh, I know what this is. I'm going to put an end to all the people, for the earth is filled with Hamas because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. This is not the first time that we've seen Hamas in existence in creation. Hamas violence has been around since the days of of Noah. It's the first place that we see Hamas used in Scripture. Now, why does this matter? Because we've been talking about the end times, right, for the last uh, four weeks here, five weeks. Jesus said this last week when we were looking in in, uh, Matthew chapter 24. That whole chapter is about signs of the end. And I read this verse to you last week. Matthew chapter 24, verse 37. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus said these words. He goes, "Listen, there was something that was in that existed that was present in the days of Noah and you should expect to see some of the similar things will be present near the coming of the son of man." I I just see it this way. There was a spiritual Uh, Dynamic that existed in the days of Noah. There was Hamas in the days of Noah. And Jesus says there will literally be that same level of Hamas, of evil and violence present in the last days. And we are seeing literally Hamas pour out that type of violence in Israel today. Additionally, this is so fascinating, so interesting. Are you aware that ha- Hamas commander Mohammed Deif, he sent out a message to the entire Muslim population across the world trying to call them into this war and do you know what he was calling them into? He was calling them into this Al-Aqsa Flood. That's is what he titled the invasion, Al-Aqsa Flood. Al-Aqsa means blessed, so he called it the blessed flood. The blessed flood. There's nothing blessed or beautiful about the flood in Noah's day, and yet that is what he titled it. As it was in the days of Noah, is it possible that, whoa, he even titled something prophetically, fulfilling a a declaration that Jesus made? All right, I want to zoom back now. The kind of a 50,000 foot view of all this. While Hamas, it's a terrorist cell within Gaza, uh, there's really a bigger group that's at play here. They would, I would call them uh, kind of the the tip of the spear, if you will. But there's kind of the head of the snake. And um, the head of the snake has always hated Jews. The head finds its, way, its origins all the way back in the book of Exodus. So check this out. In Exodus chapter 17, Verse 14 through 16, it says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek. Everyone say Amalek. Amalek. Amalek, From under heaven. Next slide, I think. Is there one more slide? Yes. Yes. Moses built an altar and called it the Lord is my banner. He said, because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. This generation to generation literally can be translated for every generation. That's what it can mean. Okay, so what in the world is this passage talking about? Maybe you don't remember this story, but this is the story where um, the, the Amalekites come on out and they war against Israel. Moses goes up on a nearby mountain and he holds the staff of the Lord, the the staff that was used to part the Red Sea that led the people into the promised land. He uses that and he holds it above his his head. As long as it's held above his head, the Israelites are winning and defeating the Amalekites. As soon as his arms would grow tired and start to drop down, they would start to lose. So Moses sits down and Aaron and Hur, these two kind of right and left hand men, hold up his arms until they defeat the Amalekites that day. Okay, so that's the battle that uh, that they're referring to. Now, what makes this interesting? It's the style of warfare that Amalekite or that Amalek does here that makes God say, "I'm going to be at war against the Amalekites for every generation." So, in the book of Deuteronomy, it captures that that battle from a different perspective. It tells us a little bit about what the Amalekites were doing. Deuteronomy 25, verse 17 through 18. Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt, when you were weary and worn out. They met you on your journey and they attacked all who were weary, who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. The interesting thing about Amalekite or the Amalekites and Amalek, and the type of battle is that this is the first place that we see in Scripture terrorist-like fighting and warfare, where they're literally attacking those who are lag- lagging behind, meaning the ones who lagged behind. You want to know who they were? They were the elderly. They were the women. They were the children. They were the innocent ones. They were the ones who were unarmed. It's the first place where we see terrorist warfare is with the Amalekites. As a result, God says, I'm going to be at war with you for every generation. So now this is kind of interesting to me because the uh, Amalek and all of his people, where do the descendants of Amalek, where do they land? Where do they kind of uh, settle? Well, they settle in the north and they become known as the Persian Empire. One of the most famous officials in the court of the Persian Empire is a guy by the name of Haman. Okay, so let's Talk about Haman a little bit. Haman's a guy, he becomes the right-hand man to King Xerxes. And um, it's at a time period when they're ruling, uh, the the Jewish people have been exiled. They're living within uh, the Persian nation. And uh, this guy by the name of Haman, he's a right-hand man to the king. He gets miffed. He gets ticked off by this guy by the name of Mordecai. Mordecai is a scribe and he's a Jew and he ticks off Haman. So Haman goes to the king and says, I want the king to pass a decree. And here's going to be the decree that on a certain day of the month, like next month, uh, we're going to annihilate and kill all Jews. And this is what it says in Esther chapter 3, verse 6. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. And if you read that entire book of Esther, you discover that Esther goes to the king and really saves the people of Israel, the whole nation. But here's what I think is interesting, is that you've got Amalek, who's the first to demonstrate terrorist warfare toward the Jewish nation. He settles in Persia and out of that nation comes a guy by the name of Haman and Haman's the first to ever suggest genocide over the people of nation or the people of Israel. So, who's modern day Persia? Well, modern day Persia is Iran. Kind of interesting because I believe that there's still that there's demonic spiritual rule and influence that can actually exist over regions in fact the one specific demonic stronghold demonic really uh, presence and stronghold over a region that we see in all of scripture is actually found in daniel chapter 10 and notice where the stronghold exists This is Daniel chapter 10, and it's Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, who's trying to deliver a message to Daniel, and he says this. For 21 days, the spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia, that's a demonic spirit who ruled over the region of Persia, blocked my way. Then Malachi, one of the archangels, came to help me, and I left him there with the spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia. The only demonic stronghold ever named by name in scripture, ruled over this region of Persia, which is modern day Iran. And of course, we know that Hamas and Hezbollah, they're really, terrorist cells, but they're really pawns of Iran. Iran's greatest chant that we hear uh, on the news is death to Israel. Isn't that interesting? Death to the United States. Now, before you jump all over Iran, Hamas or Hezbollah, and you 're like oh they 're just horrible people, and they 're the worst people uh, on the planet here 's what you need to know is that God is stronger than any demonic stronghold that could possibly exist and in spite of the fact that it 's nearly impossible to get missionaries into Iran that doesn 't stop God, you, you may not know this, but Iran is probably the fastest growing underground church movement in the world right now more people are coming to christ in this kind of underground church movement in iran you might say how in the world is it happening this is absolutely bizarre the number one way that people are coming to christ uh is jesus is showing up to them in dreams he's literally showing up to them in dreams and saying i am the messiah i'm the one that you're persecuting turn to me and they are in fact the greatest underground church movement this is unbelievable it's being led by women in iran it's it's awesome and i think about acts chapter 2 verse 17 that says in the last days god says i'll pour out my spirit on all people young your sons and daughters will prophesy your young men will see visions old men will dream dreams isn't that sweet the point is, I, I think it's impossible to read scriptures without seeing how the events of today are connected to all the spiritual dynamics of history. And that's a lot of, of Israel's past, but now I want to tie some things into Israel's future. You guys doing okay? Okay. Whew, here we go. All right. Because we're like one-third of the way in. <laughs> no, I'm not, I'll get there fast. I'm joking. I'm totally joking. Some of you are like, oh, no. <laughs> I'm going to get there. Okay. So we may or may not see some of these things I'm going to talk about, all depending on uh, if or when the rapture could take place in the end times. Uh, but here are some things that will happen, okay? Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, I read this to you a couple weeks ago. This is what Jesus says. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Christ will not return until the gospel makes it to the ends of the earth. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, to Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. The gospel, the good news, has to make it to the ends of the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, language, et We are We know that we're about 200 people groups away from completing that, uh, which, quite frankly, we could, uh, as far as translating the Bible and getting, getting it in there, and we could see that completed Pretty quickly. So when you see, now notice, this is is the next verse. This is verse 15, okay? This is Jesus' words. He says, so when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. And I know, everyone's like, what? All right. So I didn't read this verse a couple weeks ago because I was like, I don't have time to unpack that thing. So I skipped it. So we're coming back today So that we can unpack it because this is so important. Because he says the gospel is gonna go to the whole world, then the end will come, and then here's something that you need to look for when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken through the prophet Daniel. What's Jesus referring to? Because we better figure that out. So let's go to Daniel and find out what Jesus was quoting and what he was talking about. Here's Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to the sacrifice and offering, and at the temple, he'll set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Clear? No. Everyone's like, what are you talking about? Okay, that's what Jesus was referring to. Okay, so we better figure out what in the world Daniel was talking about here. So to put this together, we're going to go back four verses and look at kind of what Daniel was talking about. Daniel chapter 9, verse 23. Verse 23. As soon as you began to pray, Daniel's praying. The Lord's going to send him a message. A word went out, which I have come to tell you. This is Gabriel the angel is delivering a message to Daniel. For you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. So he's going to give him a vision. Here it is. 77s are decreed for your people and your holy city. Okay. Whatever these 77s are, I'm going to talk about that in just a minute, it is decreed for your people, so the people of Israel, and your holy city, so Jerusalem. So this is a prophecy that's specific for the Israelites and for the the city of Jerusalem, okay? Okay. Here's what needs to happen to finish transgressions to put an end to sin to atone for wickedness to bring in everlasting righteousness to seal up visions and prophecies and to anoint the most holy place. Now it listed six things there that are going to be accomplished. In those some of the some things were already accomplished at Christ's death on the cross and some are yet to be accomplished. So for example, to atone for wickedness Christ's death did that. He paid and he atoned for all of sin. But uh, as far as uh, bringing in everlasting righteousness, that is yet to be seen. We we haven't seen that fulfilled. So, 77s are decreed. What are 77s? Well, almost all Bible scholars agree that the sevens are seven-year periods of time. We see that uh, fulfilled or we see that um, affirmed in other passages of Scripture through kind of throughout the Bible, as well as you're going to see it played out perfectly from a timeline perspective. So there are 70 sevens, meaning there are 70 seven-year time blocks. That's a total of 490 years that that need to be fulfilled, okay? They're going to be broken up into three different blocks of time, three different segments, okay? So very next verse says this, know and understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens, that's one time block, and there will be seven, or 62 sevens. That's a second time block. It will rebuild with streets, and uh, it will rebuild with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. OK, so what's he talking about here? From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, that's a very specific moment in time. Artaxerxes made a declaration to rebuild Jerusalem in 444 BC. From the time that happens until the anointed one, anointed means Christ, until Christ and the death of Christ, there's going to be six sevens or uh, seven sevens and 62 sevens. Notice what it says. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. This is exactly what we see uh, the context of the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And the walls, in Nehemiah chapter 2, that's what, literally, the building of the walls, that was the, what it looked like. It was in times of trouble. In Nehemiah 2, you can see that the, the builders, they built, it says that they had a hammer in one hand and a sword in the other. Because they were building, and yet they were being attacked the whole time. They were doing it in times of trouble. So, you've got... During this time period, until Jerusalem is completed, we actually know the date with that. It was literally 49 years, some scholars say, uh, and 10 days. 49 years, 10 days, but 49 years to rebuild Jerusalem. And then it says 62 sevens until the anointed one. Okay, so let's just uh, bring up my chart here, just to help us wrap our heads around it. So from the time the word goes out to rebuild, that was in 444 BC. It was the decree of Artaxerxes. Until the Messiah is cut off, okay, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. The first seven sevens, this is the rebuilding of Jerusalem. That's exactly the amount of time period that it took. Then an additional 434 years from that point until the death of Christ. Now I know if you were to add up kind of these numbers, 444 uh, and 33, you'd say, Josh, it doesn't add up to 483 years, which is what it would be. But it is 483 years. It's 483 Jewish years. Because think about it. Daniel is receiving a message for the Jewish nation in regards to a Jewish Messiah spoken over uh, the Jewish capital of Jerusalem. It's a Jewish prophetic message, and it is uh, they don't go by solar years; they go by 360-day calendar year for them, and it's exactly 483 years, seven sevens and 62 sevens, from the time that went out, the the message went out until Christ is crucified. It hits perfectly. Everyone still with me? Okay. Next verse. Now you can see on the end there; it talks about the the Antichrist making a covenant. We'll get to it in just a minute. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one Christ will be put to death. That's at the end of that, that next time period. He's put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The people of the ruler who, will, who is to come. The people immediately after Christ's death, they rise up. The ruler who is to come, they destroy the city and they destroy the temple. That happens in 70 AD when the city of Jerusalem is, the walls are destroyed and the sanctuary, the temple, the second temple at that point is destroyed. Then the end will come with a, like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. Okay, next verse, verse 27. Okay, now there's going to be a time gap. It's the church age. It's the age that we're living in right now. Until the final seven, something is going to happen. Be a marker at the beginning of the final seven. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he'll put an end to the sacrifice and offering, and at the temple, he'll set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Okay, so what is this final seven? Almost all Bible scholars agree, and I do, this is how I see it and how I believe it, is that this final seven is the seven years of tribulation that he's that he's describing here. The thing that marks the beginning of the tribulation. If you're wondering, how will I know if we're in the tribulation? Here's what we will be looking for. He, he in this, is the Antichrist. He will help to broker a deal and confirm a covenant. It will be some type of peace treaty, an accord uh, with Israel and many, many nations will come together and they'll make a seven-year peace treaty or accord. In the middle of the seven, he'll put an end to the sacrifice and offering. So during the tribulation, there will be the third temple will be established. The, The Old Testament sacrificial system will be instated, sacrifices and offering. But halfway through, he's going to break that covenant or he'll break his treaty And he's going to do something. He's going to set up an abomination that causes desolation. What is that? We don't know exactly, but we believe, uh, based on if you read Revelation chapter 13 and some other passages, that it's likely some type of icon, idol, statue, something that uh, the Antichrist is going to force everyone to worship. And it will be in his image to basically worship him. And it will be somewhere in the middle that he'll put an end to the sacrifices and offerings. So let's go back to that, um, that slide. So the Antichrist will make a covenant with the Jews and many nations for a seven-year period of time, somewhere in the middle there. He's going to break, halfway through, he's going to break the covenant and break, break that treaty, and he'll set up... The abomination that causes desolation. Some type of statue, icon, image in his image. And basically say, you must worship me at that point. 2 Thessalonians talks about it. Let's go to that passage. It says this, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, don't let anyone deceive you in any way. For the day will, will, not, uh, for the day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness, that's the Antichrist, is revealed. The man doomed to destruction he will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called god or is worship so he sets him up himself up in god's temple proclaiming himself to be god he'll be in the temple he'll stop the jewish sacrificial system and he's going to declare himself god setting up the abomination of desolation whatever that icon that image is to worship him daniel asked this question at the at the very end of of the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 12, he asked this, how long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? Notice what the angel replies to him. It will be for a time, times, and half half a time. <laughs> that, that's weird. But a time, a year, times, and a half a time, three and a half years. When the power of the holy people Has been finally broken, all these things will be completed. I heard, but I did not understand. So I asked my Lord, What will the outcome of all this be? He replies, Go your way, Daniel, because the words are rolled up and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, made spotless and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. That's three and a half years. Exactly. So, why do I walk us through all this? (laughs) Well, because one of the things that we will be looking for to be the indicator of nearing the end and the return of Christ and the tribulation and all that is there is going to be great conflict in Israel. Crazy. right? There will. There will be great conflict in Israel. It will be the greatest conflict that has ever existed or that has ever been experienced, which will bring about a seven-year covenant or treaty or accord of some sort. Now, it doesn't mean that there will be peace on earth. That's not going to be it at all. In fact, there will continue to be great conflict, but Israel will make a treaty with many, with a group of nations that will basically align with them. Um, for that seven-year period of time. I found this to be fascinating, especially in light of some recent events that just took place. Three weeks ago, Benjamin uh, not, oh man, Netanyahu, the Prime Minister of, of Israel, at the UN General Conference, he was showing this to everyone. Notice, if you can see it, it's, uh, what he held up was a map titled, The New Middle East. It was his proposal and their hopes for Israel to be aligned with, and as you can see it, Egypt, Sudan, Saudi Arabia, uh, Ben-Hanin, Jordan, all all these nations. Notice who's not included? Well, Syria, uh, Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan. But he was saying this. Now, this shook the national kind of... Uh, news because everyone was like this is impossible and yet what it was revealing was that Israel was further along in terms of talking with peace peace treaties and deals with neighboring nations that 10 years ago seemed impossible now I don't know where it all lands today especially in light of the war breaking out but what is fascinating is what it reveals is that those type of conversations were already in the works there will be some type of treaty brokered by someone, the Antichrist, for a seven-year period of time with many nations. Fascinating. All right. Hey, we did it. We made it through. 45 minutes, I did it. Uh, that's like big deal. <laughs> Alright, so what does this all mean for us? So I want to go back. I'm just going to end with one passage. Uh, 2 Peter 3, 9. I read this to you last week, but he, here's the deal. L- look at this. The Lord's not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. This whole chapter's about his return. He's not slow in coming back. What's he doing? Instead, he's patient with you. Why is he not yet here? Because he doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. His heart is that people would return to him and put their faith in Jesus Christ. That is his longing. If there's anything that is kind of keeping Christ from returning, it's because he's going, I want to allow enough time for people to repent and turn to me. Now notice what it says. What does this mean for us? Listen up, listen up. What kind of people should we ought to be? Well, we ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God. That's his returning. And speed its coming. This is one of the most fascinating lines in all of scripture. Are you aware that how we live can actually speed the coming of Christ? Is it possible that if we're not doing this thing, living holy and godly lives, if the church would actually step into the holy, holy means set apart, your life has been set apart for him, to live for him in the days that we have to literally live in such a way that other people would be attracted to the gospel work, the work of Jesus Christ that he's done in our lives, that it could be true in their lives as well. And that when we live that way, it actually can speed his coming. Isn't that mind blowing? Why don't you stand? Let me close this here in prayer. Heavenly Father, as I think about all that's happening in the Middle East, I have no fear because you have not given your people a spirit of fear or timidity, but of power, of sound minds, of wisdom, of strength. Lord, I pray that we would be the people that live holy. We are set apart lives. We have been set apart for you, for a purpose. And that we would live in such a way that it would honor you and literally speed your coming. We know that you are so patient, longing for all to come to repentance, all to come into a relationship with you. So Lord bring people to yourself. We thank you that you're doing that in Iran. We pray that you'd be doing that in the Gaza Strip. That you'd be doing that with the nation and the people of Israel. That you'd be doing that in our lives, in our homes, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our cities, and in our nation. But it starts with us. Saying, God, that's the life you've called us to. Godly holy, set-apart lives on purpose. Lord, that's what we want to step into today. With the days that we have to live for you, we do so in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Hey, if we can pray for you today, we've got prayer partners right down here. They'll be in the front, and we would love to pray with you, for you. If you want to give, you can give in boxes in the back or online. Be blessed. We'll see you guys next week. Thanks for listening to the sermon of the week. If you'd like to partner with Lakeland in helping people follow Jesus, be changed by Jesus, and commit their lives to the mission of Jesus, you can contribute to the mission by visiting lakeland.church/give.